the Brown Pundits Browncast. My name is Razib Khan, and I am here with the Brown Pundits Podcast. And today I am talking to Carl Ja. And um, the main thing that I'm going to say about him is he has a really great podcast called Clash. Um, Google it, um, look it up. It's really, really um, just interesting. Just There's a lot you'll learn. So Carl, can you introduce yourself real quick? Oh, hi, I'm Carl Za. Um, I am from Huntington Beach, SoCal. And I actually, um, I actually was born in China, one month after Mao died. So um, I spent good part of 80s living in China, going through, you know, grade school. And uh, I came to this country in 1990, right after basically right after Tiananmen Square student protest. Um, so I spent my uh, formative teenage years in the United States. I, I went to high school, college here. Um, you know, obviously I, I live here now. Uh, so I believe, I do believe I can bring a unique perspective um, in regarding China because a lot of the, you know, the, a lot of the current reporting on China in the U.S., uh, you know, in the U.S. and broader Western media is mostly by either, you know, non-Chinese or say like Chinese American who are born in the U.S. who may not have, um, who may not have, you know, grown up in China. You know, I went, I, I, I went to school there. So I went through the whole socialization program. You know, I, you know, I still have friends and family who lived back in the old country. So, you know, I maintain that connection. So I'm actually, I have a follow-up question in relation to your intro. Um, what part of China is your family from? Um, you know, do you guys speak a dialect? I'm just curious about your social background. Yes. Um, so actually, my, my parents are from different parts of China. Uh, my dad grew up uh, in on the East Coast, just south of Shanghai. Um, but he went to college uh, in, in Western China. And like, when, what, by the time he graduated... You know, this was <laughs> was at the height of Cultural Revolution. So him, like many educated youth, got sent down to the countryside. And in his case, uh, he got sent down to Eastern Tibet, um, what what the Tibetan calls the Kham region, and uh, th- which today is politically not part of the Tibetan Autonomous Region, but part of the Sichuan Province. Um, and that's where my you know Sichuan Province. Uh, particularly the city of Chongqing is where my mom grew up. And, you know, she has a very similar story. After nursing school, she was also sent to Eastern Tibet, to, to, the, to, the, high, to the Tibetan highlands. And that's where they met, uh, you know, fell in love, got married. Um, and uh, so I, I, I grew up in my mother's hometown. I grew up in Chongqing, which was used to be known as Chongqing, and uh, it was a wartime capital of China during World War II. Um, and uh, it, it, not many people have heard of it because it's way inland. It's about 250 kilometers off the Yangtze River. And uh, But I, I, do, I did grow up with appreciation of the Sichuanese cuisine, which is really hot and spicy. Yeah, I mean, I we'll talk we'll talk about food later. I'm a big fan of the peppercorn, and um, so did your parents meet in Cam or Qinghai or like where like what part uh, did they meet so, in? Yeah, Cam um, is the the particular part they met um, is in the western Sichuan, like 
politically it's part of the Western Sichuan, but it's on the Tibetan plateau. So um, historically or culturally, Tibet is split into three regions. Uh, it's Wuchang, uh, Kam, and Amdo. Um, and and today, you know, Amdo is split off into mostly what's called Qinghai province, and the Kam is divided in half. So the 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 the, the part is the eastern Kam that's east of the Yangtze River became part of the Sichuan province, but it, it's still like geographically, culturally Tibetan. Um, but my parents like they mm -hmm. you know this was cultural revolution so you know mao had this group great program to send all these han chinese youth to all the borderlands you know to to tibet to xinjiang and you know my parents just got <laughs> got sent to, to tibet and so yeah so so that's what happened now you live in huntington beach wow i mean that's 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 novelistic you know i mean that's like, pretty it, incredible it is you know way because my uh my mom used to tell this story um like this is back in the 70s, like back, I think even before Nixon visited China, um, they when she was still living in a small town in, you know, basically eastern Tibet, um, they at that time, everything is rationed, right? So they just their, their, their tongue just receive a new shipment of quilts, um, right? So like, uh, all her co workers are really excited. So like, Oh, let's go get some, get some, um, I don't know. I, it might not even be quilts. It may be like whatever material you use to make quilts. Say, so, okay, they just, we just receive a new shipment. Let's go get them. You know, now you can you can uh, use the material to uh, make quilts for your for your children when they when you know when it's time <laughs> for them to get married and wedding. And my mom just thought that was so ridiculous because my mom said, "There's no way, like 20, 10, 20 years from now, I will be still living here." And my mom was right. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, she's a smart woman, obviously. Yeah. So, would you consider your would you consider yourself Chinese American, Chinese American, uh, global <laughs> person, <laughs> Homo Globo? I don't know. Okay. Uh, so, so kind of all over the place. I mean, identity is those things that uh, can be can 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 be fast shifting. I mean, originally when I came to United States, I came as a full Chinese person, and I. For a long time, even as I lived here, I, I consider myself Chinese. Um, you know, I did got my citizenship around 2000. And like, even though I had a American passport for like a good few years, I still, you know, it feels kind of weird to be referred to as American because I, I used to travel like uh, I used to backpack through Central America and um, and like all, I meet up with all these like european and brits uh euro backpackers and they call me captain america and i i, I just felt like kind of weird because i like at that time i didn't really identify being american right but i mm -hmm. but it, it took a while i mean now i consider my chin myself chinese american because you know my yeah. most of my life now has been spent in united states i mean i've been here since 1990 that's what that's 20 that's 28 years um it's a long out. time bro it's a yeah. long time <laughs> yes yes indeed well you know one thing that I, that i would say you know i um i came to this country in 1981 um as a very small child and i will say uh one thing that i've seen maybe the year 2000 is kind of a watershed it's obviously a continuous gradual thing um someone that looks like me or someone that looks like you when i was a kid in the 1980s um 
yeah, even if we had citizenship or whatever, I mean, you're not an American. Yeah. Like, if you're an American, you're a black dude or a white guy or, you know, I mean, those that's yep. an American. Um, and baby boomers in particular, no matter how liberal or traveled or open-minded, um, in their gut, they did not grow up with people like us right. as their peers speaking the same lingo as them. And so mm -hmm. we will never be of them. Yes. Um, intellectually, they can understand that we are American, but in their, in their, just like things they say offhand, it's pretty obvious that mm -hmm. we'll always be, I mean, I never, I rarely get complimented on my, my English anymore. It's only from <laughs> older people. Baby sure. boomers. Uh, you know, I have to tell a story they don't mean badly. I, may I tell a story? Um, this is, I was traveling. Yeah, yeah, go ahead in Kansas City for, for work. This is around, um, I think around 2002-ish. Um, and it's, it's after the internet bubble uh, crashed. So I was, uh, I was coming out of the elevator in, in, in a hotel in downtown um, uh, Kansas City. Um, and uh, actually not downtown Kansas City. There's a very nice part of Kansas City. I forgot what's it called. But anyway, the um, so there, there was a it's all the, it's all the Spanish it's all the Spanish stuff it's all the Spanish stuff like yes. Sevilla right yes 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 I know what you're talking about you know what I'm talking about okay so yes yeah, uh, so I'll put it in the show notes okay I apologize for you know Kansas City natives I couldn't remember it was it was like literally like 15, 17 years ago or something right so I I came out of the elevator I you know I was in the elevator with this elderly couple and this uh, you know elderly white couple and. The old, old gentleman looked me up and down and he asked me, sir, are you Indian? And I was caught <laughs> off guard. I did not know how to answer that. And I mean, like, uh, what do you mean Indian? I mean, like, how did you get that? My, my mind is like fast and furious trying to process this question. And then uh, his wa lady wife interrupted and said, oh, dear, we call them Native American now. So. That's my story. <laughs> <laughs> so I, okay, I I can't have you have you have the last word because I have a story like that. So I was shopping at a supermarket when I was uh, in college, um, and so the the checkers got to know me. And there was one of the checkers, really friendly woman. She finally asked me one day. Um, she's like, "I need to ask you because I want to know because you know this is Safeway, so they have to say Mister Mister or Mrs or whatever." Um, so it's like, "I need to ask you how to pronounce this Indian name because I don't know how to pronounce it." And so she kept the receipt because she wanted to show me. And so I look at the name, and this is this is the the spelling of the name, this Indian name N G U Y E N. <laughs> oh. Oh great! I, I, I told her how to pronounce. I told her how to pronounce it, and then I went on my way. But that was pretty funny. Oh, that, that was great. That's great. Um, if, if, and I am sure any Vietnamese listener of yours are getting great kick out of it. Yeah. So, um, I guess like let's talk about China. Um, sure. You know, I'm gonna put you on the spot. Like, you know, what are three things that you want someone listening to this podcast? And I think about a third of our listeners are living in india and then most of the rest in the united states mm -hmm. and you know it's racially diverse just so you know like what are three things that you want them to know that maybe they don't know like you know people know okay the chinese cuisine they know it's a big the most populous country okay these are facts that they know but what don't people know that you would want them to know well that you would want that's me to know? a very open-ended question um um what what i what I can say is uh, that don't believe everything you read in the newspapers. Um, it's not that they're, uh, you know, 
they're spreading lies. It's that um, the a lot of the in the current media, especially in the United States, what we get uh, the from from the re media reporting on China is a particular aspect of China. You know, China. I I like to say China is like a giant elephant, right? And and you you know like the, it's like the story of blind man feeling the, the elephant you know each each person has a different perspective what china is but but china could be all those things but um in in terms of uh the, you know the media especially western mainstream media they like to foc focus laser sharp on usually the negative aspect of china it's not that they they uh those things are not true or you know like cuz a lot of the time those reports are based on grains of truth. It's just that they always focus on the elephant's ass, right? Or can I say that word on your on your show? I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 it's clean. I mean, that's not even swearing. I mean, you know, I think what you're talking about if it bleeds it leads, right? Okay. I mean, that philosophy is yeah. is generally I think underlines. I mean, you know, Indians have told me the same thing like, "Oh, like there's some like Christian missionary gets burned." In a country of 1.1 billion people, there's a lot of right. terrible things that happen. And that, that doesn't yep. mean statistically there's not differences, but people's attention is finite. And they exactly. will, you know, summarize it in a way to get attention to particular things they want you to see. Sure. And then there's other things that you don't see. And frankly, I um, I know a little bit about this just because, uh, you know, as I told you before we started recording – my wife actually went to China in the late 1990s. And, mm. you know, she's told me things that people talk to her. And I was just like surprised that Chinese people were saying this. And I'm pretty, I mean, I feel like for someone that hasn't been to China, like I've been to Hong Kong, I don't think that counts. I'm pretty aware of a lot of the geography and like the history and things like that. And, you know, I read the New York Times, I read the international section and the science section mostly pretty religiously. Like I'm not super interested in national politics because most of it's trash, right? Mm -hmm. And still I was surprised. So, I mean, I, I think that you're totally correct there. I mean, what English language publications do you think do the best? Or is it just all kind of a waste? Well, <laughs> ironically, um, I think Wall Street Journal actually do a good job. Just, just ignore their editorials. <laughs> ignore their editorials. Um, most of the business reporting on China is 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 decent. Um, you know, the, yeah, like I would definitely place uh, Wall Street Journal above, say, New York Times or or Washington Post. You know, because because at least you know a lot of the business reporting it kind of filters out of a lot of the constructed narrative and and you know mm -hmm. you know Wall Street Journal. Well, I mean, I saw go ahead. Yeah, I, mean, I, I no, I mean, I don't, I can't speak directly to the veracity, but I do subscribe to the Times and the Wall Street Journal, and um, I do have to say, one of the things with the Wall Street Journal is since it's geared towards a financial audience, yes. they have a lot of skin in the yes. game. Um, they can't, they can't go around doing sensational propagandistic stuff yes. if it doesn't go towards the bottom line, and so I think that does influence their coverage in terms of what they're going to focus on. With the New York Times, I do have to say, some of their international coverage is a little more. Um, let's just say human interest is one way I could say sure. it. Um, it's more novelistic. It's more narrative driven. And that gives more license to creativity, <laughs> which is a problem. Sure. Right. Yeah. You don't, you don't want your journalist to get too creative. The stories get too long. And um, I mean, that's my personal sure. perception, but I mean, it's great to know that, that the wall street journal is, is definitely um, definitely like doing a pretty good job. Um, one thing that, you know, I have said to, you know, I feel this, I feel like living in the United States, we've been saying that China is going to be rising for a generation now. 
and now it's happened and yet we really can't can't wrap our minds around it because we've been number one for so long and we're still number one i think on nominal yeah. gdp but we're not where we were you know when you left china in 1990 it was such a poor oh, country yeah. right oh, yeah. and now there are parts parts of china that are first world countries basically you know there are certain regions economically they're it's advancing yeah. they're, they're producing yeah it's totally engaged in catch-up and so like i feel like we don't perceive that in a very deep intuitive way partly because of the rate of change right what do the chinese perceive about us like flipping it around do they care because we we care about what's going on in china even if we want a biased view oh i mean i mean are you talking about like average man on the street in china or are you talking about say like the chinese government because that might be a different thing um i, I i'll take let's talk let's talk about china yeah, Chinese government and the person that would read a financial right. newspaper. So let's talk about like upper middle sure. class. Oh, Chinese. definitely. I mean, I mean, United States is on everybody's mind in China. I mean, it's it's like in a way, because um, it, it's in a way, you know, United States is what the China wants to emulate, right? It, it, <laughs> it, you know, like it seeks to um, uh, not not to replicate the political system. But it definitely China does want to um, have that the, the power and status that the United States currently enjoy as a hegemonic power in the world. I mean that's so 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 yes, United States in many ways is being closely watched, and and also the English being you know international language, a lot more Chinese you know learn learn English than you know vice versa American no Chinese. Um, and, and, you know, a surprising number of young people nowadays, you know, they use VPN to get over the great firewall, you know, to, they have access to Facebook, uh, YouTube, Twitter. I mean, it's a pain in the ass, but there's still significant number of people who do it because this is a, this, you can see this in like YouTube comments <laughs> and, uh, you know, like I, I, I um, noticed recently a lot of the t Chinese TV shows, TV dramas, they're just um, simultaneously outputting them on YouTube now. And they have a large like viewing audience. And, and I know not all of them are like overseas Chinese or diaspora. Like quite many are actually just from looking through the comments, many of them are actually Chinese people in China using VPN to get over the firewall, logging onto YouTube and watch Chinese show. I have no idea why they do that, but people barely do 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 that. So, just FYI. Interesting, yeah. interesting. So, I mean, so so basically, um, you know, despite the Great Firewall, you would say that um, you know, I think most of the listeners for this podcast are probably college educated. A lot of them are professionals. You know tech nerds, these sorts of things, the average Chinese equivalent, they know what's going on in the rest yeah. of the world. Like they can go around the firewall. Um, they're, they're conscious, they're focused, yeah. they're looking at other countries and, you know, they're trying to figure out their place. For the right? upper, for the urban educated, um, upper middle-class Chinese. Yes. Yes. Not the, not, but not the All vast right. so, majority of the Chinese. Like, keep in mind, they're still like vast amount of Chinese people who you know, don't know English, never know what VPN is and, you know, couldn't be bothered. Right. So, yeah. Do you, do you, when you go back to China, do you interact with people like that? I mean, oh, like what's going on there? I mean, I feel like that is an untold story. Um, oh, sure. I mean, you know, like there, you know, you, you interact with people like that, say 
you know, in public spaces, right? Like in, in a train station, on the train, <laughs> I mean, everywhere. Like if you go to a noodle shop, for example, um, you know, like, uh, so, so yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, I have, um, that's a good question. Cause now, now, now that you mentioned it, I, I, uh, I, cause I mean, I, I have families in China, but I never asked them. Um, I know my, my little cousin who is now, uh, who just moved, uh, came to United States to study this year. I know she, for sure, she has VPN and <laughs> she can't get on the, can't get on the, um, uh, go across a great firewall. And I also know like a girl I used to date it. She's in China. She also have VPN because she has a Facebook account. So she, <laughs> for sure, she, and, and also, um, but most Chinese people, they would use, uh, you know, uh, Chinese apps like WeChat. Um, uh, uh, WeChat is, is, yeah. is, is so popular. I mean, like it's, it's like everywhere in China, basically. And, and people use it to make payments and basically everything. And, and, and now like there's actually a lot of Chinese restaurants here. They uh, accept WeChat payment, which is quite mind-boggling. Yeah, so I, you know, one thing, um, I do have uh, friends in business who, I have a friend and he is American. Um, I mean, he's uh, he's Eurasian, just just so you know, he's not white, but he's not Asian either. He's, his, his mother is from Asia, but in any case, East Asia. Uh, but he has a business in, um, in Beijing. And uh, one thing that he says is that whenever he comes back to the United States, and by this he means Houston, uh, he does feel like he's going back into the 20th century. Like, what do you think about a comment like that? Are they seeing a very, very biased view of China? Because so many of these, well, let's call them expats, these foreign business people are in like Shenzhen, Beijing, Shanghai. Um, I mean, the, uh, it's like, it. I can totally see how he has that perspective coming from like, like those... Uh, first tier cities in China, right? Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Guangzhou, Shenzhen. And uh, the interior China could be quite different. I mean, sometimes you don't even need to go far. Um, I was in Beijing in 2010, um, you know, that's because my my cousin um, held her wedding in a city just outside of Beijing. So I, you know, it took, took the tour. And we went to the Ming, uh, uh, Ming Dynasty tomb, um, which is just maybe like 30, 40 minutes outside of Beijing. Um, oh, man, it's like traveling from first world to the third world. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I was not so, so I, I expected there, there are differences between rural and urban, but I did not expect to find it so, uh, you know, so close to Beijing, you know, like literally, you know, out of the, in the burbs, you're already <laughs> in the certain world. And that, that I was, that I was surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, though, um, I, I wonder though, I have a friend who recently moved to Oregon, uh, for faculty job and, you know, he's from the East coast or a big urban area from the East coast. And, uh, it is striking to him when he steps outside of the cities in Oregon, how wild everything is. So even in the United yes. States, there are these differences in terms of development and density. So the Pacific Northwest is characterized by extreme high polarization and land use, right? So like right outside the city limits, 
you have second they're not old growth they're second growth but like there's just like mm-hmm. a lot of trees because it rains a lot and you got to be like on it to keep it cleared mm-hmm. if it's not a farm right and so you know i wonder with some of these um like some place like china where the development is like so compressed so one thing that i read is european cities with the industrial revolution and economic growth it was stretched out over a century and so things developed more organically and with east asia you know earlier it was the tigers now it's china um you know japan went through the same thing everything like developed yes. really fast and so you have these like layers of almost different oh. epochs very close to each other. I mean, even uh, within the people, right, within generations, I I like to say, like, in China, every five years is like a generation. (laughs) Because, uh, you know, like, it's just such a different live experience. Um, You know, like, just to give give you an example, like, when I was uh, in first grade in China, I think this was like 1981, 82. uh, I don't remember around that time. And, and, uh, I, I, me and my, our classmates, we, cause this is during the, the early period of, um, open and reform period, right. Under Deng Xiaoping. And we used to joke, oh, like when late, when we grow up, when it's really opened up, you know, maybe, maybe we even get to like, like to hug. Uh, uh, hug girls on the street in public and, and kiss. And at that time, we thought that was like totally outside of the realm of possibility. Okay, this was 1982. I mean, uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, like this is this is within my memory. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, things change so fast. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, I feel like I mean, I hear about things like gay rights and stuff in East Asia and. It's really strange sometimes to read about it because, you know, I don't perceive those cultures as very, uh, you know, sexually liberated. <laughs> but I mean, is that is that a misconception? So, um, yeah, like this is very interesting because uh, Vietnam is actually one of the first country in East Asia to legalize gay marriage. Not many people knew about it in the United States because they don't report it. You know, if if they report, if they report it, they will always help Taiwan as the exemplary democracy because they they're you know they're moving in that direction but but vietnam actually did it a while back and but and just to give you a perspective when i grew up in china in 1980s homosexuality was classified as a psychological disease (laughs) that was that was classified as like yeah yeah, psychological disease but but by I think in, in the 90s or 2000, somewhere around, it's definitely after I left China, they decriminalized, uh, finally decriminalized homosexuality. Uh, but, 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 you know, like. Well, I mean, you know, the United States had like that going on until 1970. So it's not like China is, uh, you know, that far behind, right? So, I mean, a lot of these things have also moved fast, like even in the United States. So this is, this is a global pattern of, rapid change and shocks and reverses and just like trying to grapple with it i'm like i'm interested in it because i live in the world and my children will grow up in this world but uh it's definitely something we all have to you know deal with and i think like you know we talk about the white working class a lot in the trump election a lot of that is is a reaction a denial an inability to comprehend what's going on with their place in this world right so um in terms of uh demographics and economics i do want to bring up um 
the Chinese dependency ratio and the aging of the population, like what do what do Chinese people that you've talked to like does it ever come up? Do they think about it? I mean, obviously, to make this work, you need to increase your productivity a lot to support right. people that aren't working or have them work longer. So, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's some kind of panicking among like. Uh the kind of the public intellectual class, I guess, the pundit class, because, um, because, you know, the most obvious sign is China has changed its finally changed its uh, one child policy. Now, now it's two child policy, right? And, and there's even indication that um, they're going to start encouraging people to have children, right? There's, there's already um, like a lot of talks in the public sphere about this, uh, potential population crisis, but I mean, I, I, I personally, I mean, I, I take a different view just because, you know, in the, I grew up in the eighties in China when it was just, most of the economy was very socialist. <laughs> and I see a lot of people go to like stay jobs and they don't really do anything. <laughs> and people are just, yeah, people are just oh, okay. passing time. Uh, and, and then, you know, it was not really, you're not really productive. Okay. And, 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 and you say, you say, are you saying there, there, there's still, there is still productivity that is not being uh, well, well, by state. Okay. State let companies. me rephrase that. I, well, what I'm saying is that my parents' generation, right. There were basically, there was a lot of inefficiencies and um, there, there were a lot of the, you know, human capital exactly was not utilized. So by, 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 by my gen, it's really that my generation, the generation that grew up after cultural revolution, um, that has really like see the productivity skyrocket, right? Um, but, you know, there's still a lot of ways for Chinese uh, uh, to society to leverage its, uh, to, to modify its policies. For example, right now, the Chinese uh, retirement age is like in the 50s. Right, like that. That basically hasn't changed for decades. Yeah, like oh. my, my yeah, my mom yeah. used to be like, "Why my friends all all like retired?" <laughs> this she's used to say that ten years ago, right? Like even even uh, her youngest sister, who is eleven years younger than her, was retired. You know, like many years ago, and 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 uh, like. You know, China. So China could easily just raise the retirement age, say by twenty years or so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. That 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 really puts a different perspective because basically, instead of a new model, you just need to change the parameters on this model, and that would at least push sure. into the future any sorts of uh, economic productivity crisis because you don't have enough workers. That makes, I didn't know that about the retirement age and we have the same issue or not we, but the same issue occurs in Southern Europe where the retirement age is mm -hmm. pretty low. And so you have a large population that's collecting pensions. That's not in the labor force and a smaller population that's paying into it. So, I mean, these are, these are like, you know, technocratic yeah. fixes that can happen. I guess another question I want to ask about, um, I don't know like your personal beliefs. Uh, I know a lot of Chinese that, uh, migrate or like you know resettle in the united states and other you know countries um you know they become pretty i mean not a fair number they become uh, pretty devout christians and i know um my evangelical acquaintances are convinced that you know china is going to become <laughs> the next great christian power and there's a lot you know a lot of a lot of writing about that i mean you're laughing so i, I don't know how to take that but um like what's your perception on like you know the role because there's a lot of writing 
um, especially in the New York Times, you notice, um, because of like the Uyghurs, but also like Christians and the suppression of the house churches. Like, what's your perspective on the role of Christian religion and what it could do with China's connection to the West and its orientation in geopolitics? And is China going to be like South Korea, where the Christian you know, minority is culturally actually quite dominant, even though it's a minority, or is it going to be more like Japan or even Taiwan, where they're just part yeah, of the landscape? Yeah, I think it's dictating. Taiwan is more likely. Uh, I mean, because, um, you know, like Christianity has been in China since, uh, you know, since forever. Uh, <laughs> and and it's uh, probably they had the greatest um, allure, should I say, back in like early 20th century or late late 19th century and early 20th century when like really the the foreign power was uh, was uh, dominant in China right and there were actually a lot of tangential a lot of uh, real benefits of being a christian right there was, there was a that was when the term rice christian was invented because <laughs> when like when you uh, become a Christian, yeah. they will give you rice. And <laughs> so a lot of people were just uh, becoming Christian for that reason. But um, there, there's, there's what you said about uh, Chinese diaspora converting to Christianity. There's actually, um, I, I know uh, some cases and I, I understand why that happens. Because first of all, you know, like um, a lot of the Chinese uh, who immigrated, they they come to they come to uh say like a place like United States, w- w- which is still fairly religious compared to you know other developed nations, and and a lot of times they're you know cut off from their normal social network, right? And and joining a church is like the easiest way to to establish a network, right? And um. And- and, and some of them yeah. are for personal reasons, because, you know, maybe they felt lonely and isolated. And and, and the, the church actually knows, knows that a lot of evangelical groups specifically target those uh, <laughs> those Chinese students or, or Chinese individuals who are, you know, come, coming to this country. Yeah. So that that there is definitely a, that phenomenon, but it, it has its own very um, special circumstances, right, which does not exists in china itself now there is a booming um christian population in china because um you know like during cultural revolution basically all religion were banned and so after cultural revolution after the rules were relaxed there's um and and on top of that there's kind of revival right um uh, uh, both traditional religions and because um, in the 80s, 90s, and 2000, like the Chinese uh, basically enters this like very materialistic period. So people are kind of looking for, uh, there are people who are looking for spiritual support, right? There's, there's a kind of spiritual vacuum right. that, that has, there was a need to be filled. So so like, yeah, there's a lot of Christian groups that, that did, uh, you know, leverage that that niche and and so so there there's definitely the christian population is growing but it's not gonna be like another south korea that that's not gonna happen yeah i mean i i think with south korea you know there are special historically contingent uh circumstances with south korean nationalism in the early 20th century christianity the japanese imposition of buddhism and so there's a lot there's a lot of dominoes that needed to break where that became a special 
situation in East Asia. And then you have these other other circumstances um, where, you know, Christianity is part of the landscape. And Japan had that same thing with uh, prominent intellectuals converting to Christianity around the end of the 19th century and in the early 20th century. And, you know, Japanese nationalists will tell you that uh, Christianity and I believe the Roman Catholic Church has some, you know, uh, pull within the royal family with the maternal lineage, which if you can Google, there's some (laughs) conspiracy theories, but some of it seems legit in any case. In any case, um, you know, so there's some influence there. Um, I just wanted to bring it up because, um, you know, if you, if you, I don't know if you saw it, I haven't seen the whole movie, but I've seen clips, uh, the movie God is Not Dead or something. It's like an evangelical movie. And, you know, there's a bunch of different kind of stock figures. There's the Muslim girl in the hijab who <laughs> decides to convert to Christianity, you know, um, you know, that's just like, they, they really want to target like the, what is it like the 2040 like window or whatever. And then, you know, there's mm-hmm. the Chinese international student. Uh, they're not right. international, but he's an immigrant. His parents are immigrants and he converts to Christianity. And so I feel like in that subculture, you know, and I, I grew up in a very conservative area where most of my friends were either Mormon or they were, you know, they were like evangelical Protestant, like conservative Protestant. And this was like 30 years ago now. And, you know, they were talking about how China was going to become Christian. And there was that book, Jesus in Beijing, that came out in the early 2000s. And looking at the history, I was just like a little skeptical because when you when your when your baseline is so low, yep. the rate of growth is going to be high. But you can't pro- you can't yes. project that that's going to continue and that the saturation point is going to yep. be like 60 or 70 percent. And so I guess um, I the situation is like with the Communist Party in China, um, you know, a lot of people ideologically like i mean do they believe in socialism do they believe in marx like i don't really understand it because i think of china more as a right-wing authoritarian system at this point (laughs) okay so so let me let me um let me break it down so there's there's what the chinese government itself believes and there's what general populace believes right so socialism and marxism they don't have much purchase among the general chinese population anymore um but the chinese government the chinese communist party still believe they're practicing socialism okay i i mean like like it's and 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 it's not that they are um merely paying a normal uh narrative is that they're just paying lip service right there in chinese there's actually a saying uh hanging the um hanging the goat's head by selling dog meat, right? So like some you're you're doing some shady stuff and okay. totally like inauthentic inauthentic. But but um in but the no but the, uh, the 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 Chinese Communist Party actually does believe what they say mostly mostly um because if you look at they you know they they retain the Leninist party structure and and they still believe in molding in, in social engineering, and that 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 you know they they believe in the so-called scientific management of the society, right? And and that has never really changed. And and you know the what what has changed is kind of like the radical Maoism of the early PRC period that was gone, right? Because Cultural Revolution happened and everybody decided. Oh, at least everybody in power decided, okay, that 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 was bad. <laughs> Let's not not do that again. And but um, you know, the, the, what official line in China is 
it's not that China is a socialist um, country. Even it's like they're working towards socialism, right? I mean, the, 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 the at least they use a Marxist theory to justify that. Like, to, yeah, to get to socialism, you have to go through the stages, right? The capitalist stage, uh, because China never had that capitalist accumulation period. So now China is is going back to the you know ground zero, right? First, it has to build build through the capitalist stage to finally reach the capitalist uh, the social uh, socialism in the end, right? So, so now now official official parlance, China is working towards socialism. So so I mean that, <laughs> so has, suppose- that has yeah that has some logic. It still seems a little too clever by a half, as the British would say. Sure. It's like, you need to sure. go through a fascist bourgeois stage to get to the communist utopia. Um, I, I don't know if I buy it, but you know, um, good luck to them. But I guess, like, so I'm confused in terms of like, you know, the Chinese government um, is promoting Confucius Institutes and there's all these arguments whether they're, you know, they're used as fronts for spying operations, all this stuff. I don't really care about that. What I'm curious though is, you know, 30, 40 years ago, could we imagine a situation where the Chinese government is sponsoring institutes that are, you know, given the label Confucius institutes? Like, I mean, how far well, has the, like, has the culture moved, you know? Sure. I mean, like in 1972, there was a campaign called uh, uh, criticizing Confucius, <laughs> criticizing Lin Biao, criticizing Confucius. Lin Biao was the successor of Mao, right? And then, in 1972, he died in a supposedly defection attempt to Soviet Union. And so there was a campaign, Peeling uh, Pikol, which literally means criticizing Lin Biao, criticizing Confucius. And, you know, like the Confucius, Conf- Confucianism has been under attack in China, actually, before even communists came to power, pretty much uh, in late 19th century, because a lot of the radical Chinese intellectual at the time they felt, uh, you know, Confucianism is what actually held China back, what kept China backwards. And the only way for China to truly modernize is to ditch its feudal past and to ditch Confucianism. And and communist communist government carried that to a to the extreme, right? <laughs> During Cultural Revolution, yeah. and and so now we're seeing, um, like, even the. In the 80s, you know, I grew up in a time of transition, you know, when when, when things are opening up, um, when like the, the, the cultural revolution was largely condemned. And but even in that, even during that time, uh, you know, like, like, there's kind of revival on worship, on like honoring the Chinese tradition, um, not, 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 uh, criticizing as a feudal past anymore but still during that time it would not be uh it was hard to see like confucian confucius being openly worshipped like like uh just a few years back actually they put out the a statue of confucius in Tiananmen square and that actually was still very controversial because a lot of people was like oh my god you know <laughs> so yeah. now now the the communist party is uh, putting out the old idols i mean i'm talking about like the talks on the chinese social media you know people are saying yeah. that's like oh, this is ridiculous uh you know they're 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 running out of ideas so they're, they're resurrecting the old idols um but but i mean i do see like a trend though there is a trend i mean not just 
um, government-led, but also a you know a general society trend where there's a return, definitely a more return to um, like honoring Confucianism. Um, one 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 thing I was really shocked is you know people are. Uh, there are some schools, this is not China-wide, you know, China is a big country, but some parts of China, you know, school officials have instituted, like, uh, trying to resurrect such Confucianist rituals and, you know, um, having students memorize, like, the Confucianist, Confucian classics. I mean, those things were unimaginable, even, not to say my parents' days, but even in my days in the eighties, that that was like, oh my god, <laughs> it's like why why do I have to do this? You know why? I mean, even now I still think that's 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 just bogus. But uh, and and there's many people who share the same thoughts as me. But you know, there's significant amount of people. There's enough people that thought that was a good idea to teach their children Confucian classic. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's thousands of years of history, and uh, you know what we see in um. Russia, since the fall of communism, is the revival of a Russian Orthodox nationalism. Yes. And even though the the population yeah. as a whole is not like the most pious, uh, Russian Orthodoxy has become central to Russian identity after seventy years of attempts to destroy it, uh, you know, deface it, uh, degrade it, disincentivizing it. It still came back. And you know, I'm an atheist. Uh, I don't believe in religion, but as a phenomenon, religion or these sorts of like sacred, uh, ritualistic ideologies and myth—they're so powerful, you can't kill them. Yeah. They just, you can't strangle sure. them, you know. So like you know, Mongolia is going back towards Tibetan Buddhism. All these old you know religions are coming back, and so I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if, as China becomes you know just another normal post-communist nation if the old verities come back as well and you know the old the, the ancient view was a history is a cycle and you know today like we tend to be progressive whiggish in our orientation and i think the truth is kind of in the middle like we see this in the united states itself where things have gone cyclically what a lot of americans don't know um about say racism is that the united states was racist but it got considerably more racist right before the civil war and then there was a period of very little or relatively little racism. And then it got progressively more racist up until about like 1910. So we have these two waves of increased salient white nationalism in this country. Whereas before there was, there was actually a legitimate debate about whether this was a white man's country or like what the role of race was. And so right. this is a young country that's gone through several cycles on that issue. And I do want to like bring that up because, um, one of the things that Asian people, and I say Asian as Asian Americans, people from Asia, is uh, living in the United States where we're very conscious of identity politics and being politically correct is uh, Asians are among the most racist people in the world uh, in a very casual, <laughs> almost, casual <laughs> almost non-ideological way. And so um, I will start right. off like, uh, so, you know, my family is from like kind of a particular area of Northeast part of the Indian subcontinent where we have like visible Asian ancestry, you know? And so, um, you know, one of my uh, uncles, well, I mean, he's more of an uncle-in-law. So he's my aunt. Anyway, he's a part of my family. His nickname is Jackie Chan because he looks Chinese to them, right? <laughs> I mean, but he has, like, he, has, he has visible, it's like kind of like Burmese Tibetan features. You know what I'm saying? That's where yeah, it's from. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I've, I've done the genetics. Like I know where it's from. Yeah, and so, yeah. you know, there's this, it's like funny, like we joke about it. 
But, um, you know, Indian American friends of mine that grew up in kind of a, let's just say they're more woke, you know, the upper middle mm-hmm. class, liberal. And so um, they are, they, I had an Indian American friend complain that uh, his best friend was Japanese American and his parents uh, were just like, and they were professors, you know, they're like professionals, mm-hmm. but his parents were just like, mm-hmm. oh, you should invite your Chinese friend over. <laughs> and finally, my friend is just like annoyed because he's like, he's not Chinese. His, his family's Japanese American. And his parents looked at him really frustrated and they were like, yes, we said your Chinese friend. <laughs> I mean, like they, knew, they knew he was Japanese American, but to them, that's Chinese. Like they yeah, know yeah, that yeah. he's not technically Chinese, but anybody yeah, yeah. that looks like that to them yeah. is Chinese. Uh, it's uh, every every. Uh, I mean, basically everywhere. I mean, south of Rio Grande, where all I mean, all these Asians are Chinos. So <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I had so I had I mean, in graduate school. I had a, a friend, and he his paternal grandfather was a Chinese merchant. He was from Costa Rica, so his last name was his, mm-hmm. it was like, he had a Chinese last name Cho. So I knew. Yeah. And so I saw him, um, and during the social, I'm like, yo, what's up, Chino? And he like was like, wait, how'd you know that was my nickname? And I'm like, dude, <laughs> you're obviously part Chinese, and you're from Latin America. I know your nickname's going to be Chino. <laughs> I mean, they're not, they're, not that, they're not that unpredictable of a people with their nicknames. And we, just, yeah. we had a good laugh. We got a good laugh over that, you know? Yeah, yeah, because um, I, I, I have a surf crew in um, – in, in Huntington Beach. I, I joined the surf crew in the Huntington Beach, right? But there's already a, like a Jamaican Chinese guy and they call him Chino, right? So they will yeah. call him like Chino in the water and I will get confused. Like, are you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> Which one? <laughs> there's 1.4 billion, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I, I so think I, the, the, the casual yeah, racism is true. But I think it's, there's a different type of racism in in uh, in, in Asia. I I I think it's it's more tend toward the casual racism and the ignorant spectrum, right? Like um like people, uh, there's no political correct, correctness in in East Asia. There's no 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 people people will tell you that you're fat, you know, to your face. <laughs> that's just yes. how yeah. that culture is, you know. They they I mean, won't, that's not most of the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 i mean like like um but but it's it, it's it is a racism sure it's definitely racism but it's a different kind it's it's i have to say it's a different kind i mean it's it's hard to to describe it but you know just putting it out there yeah i mean so i mean one thing that i i guess i'm curious about is uh so you know talking to um american friends and mostly they're white um but uh you know they don't they're not really they're not literally multicultural. Like I feel like, um, like I don't really have much sympathy for anthropologists that are explaining to me all this stuff about cultural diversity. Cause I'm like, I am cultural diverse. You know, <laughs> my parents are, my parents are immigrants. You know, I walk into a room filled with white people. I am the diversity, you know? So I know all about this. I know yeah. about negotiating, you know, like I showed up in upstate New York in the middle of winter, there was snow on the ground. I'd never seen snow. I barely yeah. knew English. Okay, yeah. so like I know all about this. I didn't need to go like do field work for six months, exactly. but um. So I I guess like one thing that uh that I'm curious about though is so you know in the United States we're kind of we're you know we're still racist, but you know ideologically we're post racist. Mm-hmm. But I feel like you know with China as China becomes more and more important. So I mean I'm gonna give you an anecdote, and this like you know I can give you many more of these. So like you know I had um an, a friend 
I would say acquaintance, but I would say friend. We're friends. And his mm-hmm. brother is, is a banker at Goldman, right? And so one mm-hmm. of the issues that has happened, and he's Indian-American, right? Mm-hmm. He's Indian-American, so he's a brown guy, right? When they go mm-hmm. to Shanghai, there's a problem because like the Chinese people just assume he's some junior person because mm-hmm. he's not white. Yeah. You know? Yep, yep, and yep. like he just kind of, I mean, at first he was like a little surprised, you know? Mm-hmm. But look, this is just like the reality, like, you know, yeah. it seems like there's a racial hierarchy that yep. they assume tacitly. It's Therefore. not like Therefore. it's not like an ideological thing, and you, you mm-hmm. just got to figure this out. And so I guess, like, I mean, do you think that that's a, a correct perception that, like, we, we go outside the bubble of the United States where everyone has to be, like, performatively woke, you know? And then you go to this other country, which is becoming more and more powerful, you know? So, for example, with the Chinese in Africa, I mean, I don't know what uh, you would I, say, but, I mean, I think, like, ob- objectively, it seems like you would call it, call it some sort of colonialism. You know, whether it's good or bad, you know? Well, I mean, China is not... Okay, so China in Africa is, you know, it's not what the Chinese government in its propaganda called necessarily win-win, right? China is not going to Africa for philanthropy, right? It's going there for its own national interest, which is getting natural resources out. But... Um, I consider it unfair to compare to, say, the European uh, colonialism of the past. I mean, let's face it, China is not chopping people's limbs <laughs> to increase uh, ivory production here. So, I mean, like, there's, there's, a, there's a definitely qualitative difference, right? Um, you, you, can you call it neocolonialism? Maybe, but, but it's, it's uh-huh. different, right? And what, 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 yeah. I mean, China is definitely going there for profit that's that's it's the only yeah, reason yeah. it's there it's, it's not there to going there to uh you know necessarily for the benefits of of the africans right and but but yeah uh, but you know like it's not but it's 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 not as rosy as it depicted in the, the chinese government propaganda but um i i take a um i take a different view for how it's being depicted in the western media on, on the on the because you know come on like who, who, who are you to, like, I mean, look at all these Europeans, uh, journalists, like, who are you to, like, call Chinese colonialists in Africa? I mean, seriously. But anyway, so, um, but... No, thought- no, 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 but they, but they, they have to, but, you know, I mean, that's their role. Sure. sure. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, I think one of the issues, you know, like, I, I, I do believe that white people in particular, whether they're racist or anti-racist, they are the center of the universe. Sure. And sure. so it it's difficult for them to understand things on any other terms than their own terms. That that I right? really so, can't understand because, you know, I come from China uh, where, you know, I'm part of the dominant ethnic group. You know, I'm part of the majority, right? So it's a very, like, there's a, that majority kind of like... Um, uh, you know, t- what people call white privilege today is really like majority privilege, right? It's like, yes, it's, 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 it's so like there's, um, and going back to the racism and China, China, China in Africa, there was a famous incident, like just a couple, just like a year ago, I think. So during the Chinese New Year um, gala, which, you know, happens every Chinese New Year, it's a big deal. It's on state TV, like, Billions of people tuning in to watch it. They had they decided to do a skit on you know on Africa related because you know that's that's because the Chinese government want to sell that to 
the domestic audience, right? On that China is doing good by Africa, that, that what China is doing in Africa is good for the African. Mm-hmm. Um, except they chose a Chinese actress to blackface, right? In blackface to perform this. Game. Yeah. They also had, you know, some, um, uh, <laughs> and on top of that, they even had, a, but they did have Africans, you know, they had Africans playing support supporting role. And one of the supporting role is a monkey, you know, like they had an African, you know, like a monkey suit. Right. So, so that, that, that was yeah. a big controversy, um, you know, in Africa, in the West, but like Chinese audience are dumbfounded. It's like, Oh, but we meant well, you know, <laughs> like they, they, they didn't yeah. see that as racist because they're like, Oh, but, but it was, a, it was, we, we meant well, you know, it was a nice, it was about the, it was about nice, uh, feelings it's a skit yeah. about you know win-win they don't even see that how that could be like offensive right and like uh, I, I mean i i'm i'm face palming but like I, it's sometimes hard to uh explain that that's that's really offensive and racist but but it's not like they don't understand the concept but if you if you um show them the example of uh i think it was bella hadid the super victoria supermodel who uh, posted an uh, Instagram uh, shot of her doing the East Asian fa- uh, eyes. She's just pulling her eyelid and uh, posting yeah. next to a Buddha face. And and that Instagram generated a huge controversy in China. So that so much so that uh, she was disinvited to the Victoria's Secret show in Shanghai. Right. I mean, so so Chinese people do see that as racism. When, yeah. when white people yeah. does that to them, but they don't see <laughs> they don't see the same uh, they don't see it the same light when they dress up a Chinese uh, woman in like exaggerated African features, like because in this particular case she has a huge hip and you know it's like it's just ridiculous. So, but 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 like that's just typical majority thinking. They you know you majority usually is hard for them to conceive of another perspective other other from yeah. their own that i i think that's called privilege yeah. right so um i want to close out i want to talk about something like some more fun stuff maybe like uh so really quickly uh i am curious about uh regional differences within china so you know you're an american so you know that uh there's certain stereotypes of people from new york city people from the south um these oh, yeah. sorts of things um could you talk about like you know, within China, like what are the stereotypes of oh. like who, like who, who who's oh, yeah. gonna be like not tipping that much, or you know, who's gonna be working late uh, into the night? I mean, who Henan, right? The people from the Henan are you know always stereotype of thieves and cheats, and because because Henan is like this is like a province in the heartland of China. Um, it used to be like the center of Chinese civilization, but now it's really falling to a hard time. It's overly populated and and it's poor, right? It's really it's because it's poor because China Chinese society is very hierarchical, right? Like they do uh, like rank people uh, on their, literally on their worth. And, and, and going back to racism a little bit, right? Chinese people do see, do make a difference between say, black american versus african blacks right so if you're black if you're black but if you're american you automatically you know your your rank just boosted yeah. up uh, uh, <laughs> but whereas you you're you're just african like you you are going down the other direction 
right? So, so there's that, there's that because of their perceived, uh, you know, because Africans are perceived to be poor. Um, and, and, and in China, the same thing, right? Like city versus uh, countryside. Like I live in um, Chongqing, right? But like uh, at that time, even in the 80s, where a lot of the uh, farm peasants, migrants come into city for work. So, you know, I would hear all these people around me, all these urban dwellers complaining about migrants all the time, or how, how they bring in crime and, and they're, you know, cause moral degradation, like, Basically, all the things you hear about immigrants in the United States, <laughs> but like so, there's that internal yeah. dynamic in China, and and uh, and also also like um, like even Sichuan, right? Sichuan is also very it's a it's a populous place, so a lot of uh, uh, Sichuanese uh, migrants go to the coastal city to work, and I was I was shocked when I. I went to visit my father's hometown, which is on the east coast of China, like south of Shanghai. And, you know, I walk around, I hear Sichuanese spoken everywhere. Like, you know, mostly like by service people, by like, you know, like uh, um, waitresses or like uh, uh, um, like shopkeeper, mm. like like in the low 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 end service service jobs right so so there's all, all so there's also that against us as well. these people were were poor <laughs> were were poor as a mi- migrant migrant workers mm-hmm. and uh and yeah yeah so so but but, but not as bad as the Henan people Henan people get and then there's a there's a stereotype against uh, the Uyghurs right so 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 in the before the 80s um, or during 80s, at that time, it, at least what people's perception of Uyghurs in most part of the Han China is, is through government media propaganda. At that time, government liked to pre- present all different Chinese uh, minority groups as these happy singing people. So everyone know Uyghurs as these uh, people who love to sing and dance, <laughs> right? But then uh, that 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 perception quickly shifted um, in the 90s. It was um, so influx of Uyghurs into um, into uh, the the Han Chinese cities, and and there were there were a lot of um, so there were, have you you seen that movie uh, Slumdog yeah. Millionaire? Yeah. So so there was a, a there's just one of the plot of this movie. Sorry for if I'm giving it away. Uh, is that they have these uh, children who were kidnapped and used as thieves, right? Um, so that was happening in China, um, except like these children are the Uyghur children. Um, so a lot, there's there are some Uyghur gangs who use these kidnapped uh, Uyghur children to uh, access pickpockets in Chinese cities, and 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 soon. Um, and and the you know the, the, the one of the problem you know with the Chinese bureaucracy is that um, you know the, the police will arrest them, make the arrest, but then they they couldn't speak the language. You know, the, the, most of the Han Chinese policemen they don't speak Uyghur, and their children, so they let them go. But that's one of the reasons those cho- those children were kidnapped and made into pickpockets. But that became a, a like a like you know, like a well-known phenomena in a lot of the Chinese cities. So so Uyghurs were stereotyped as thieves and, and pickpockets for a long time. That was before, uh, you know, the 2009 Urumqi riot. And after that, now, now Uyghurs 
images of that of like basically yeah. terrorists, right? Like how how Muslims were preserved perceiving in United States, basically. Well, so I I have so, a question. Let me do. A, I want to do a follow yeah. up on that because um, I think listeners will know all about. Well, they will have read about the issues with Uyghurs in Northwest China. Um, one thing that I am curious about, though, is I've long been interested, um, probably because like I did some research on the genetics, um, just for unrelated reasons, of the Hui, um, who are you know Chinese mm-hmm. dialect speaking Muslims, and uh, most people say that they mm-hmm. don't look any different from the Han around them. Like, is that your perception? Like, like in their features? Um, most of okay, most of Hui, but there are some Hui they do look little different especially the hui from the north yeah, yeah. right because hui, it, the thing is hui in the old times hui was just a chinese word for muslim like regardless of what ethnic background right so uyghurs you know all the turkey muslim also were known as a hui but in the official like for example during the qing dynasty official document they were known as the turban hui whereas the 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 um the the Chinese speaking Hui were known as the Han Hui, uh. right? But but uh but but PRC uh in adopting kind of the Soviet style ethnic uh, classification scheme made Hui a, a ethnic group, right? So now like Hui is an ethnic group. So now you can be Hui but not even Muslim, yeah. but like Hui is your ethnicity on your identity i mean i know many of these such people who are uh you know have way on their identity card but they're, they're not even practicing muslim i mean they don't say they're then they say they're not muslim uh but they're Hui, yeah. you know, they're not, not han and, and uh and 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 also like there are some people who especially there are people in highland islands right these these um these muslims actually came from champa in South Vietnam before that that kingdom yeah, was Yeah, the Yutso, right? Vietnamese. Yes, yes, but but they're also classified as Hui, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> in China, there was even though yeah, even though they have their own language and custom, but they still classify as Hui. So so like Hui has very diverse origins in China. Like in Hui's in um in the East Coast on the coastal city of Fujian. Uh, particularly in Trenzo, they have a long history because the Trenzo used to be uh, a port, like a huge port city. They have a uh, like a very large trade with the Persian Gulf, right? So those those Hui were probably descended from like the Persian and Arab um, um, uh, traders, merchants, uh, you know, who you know took on Chinese wives, uh, and whereas like um, Hui's in uh, Yunnan, on, which is on the border with Myanmar. They were, um, they were, they came with the Mongol con- conquerors. They came part of the Mongol army who who conquered that region. And in fact, that um, there were large, set, large part of the so-called Mongol army was uh, was like the Central Asian Turks that the the Burmese at the time when the when when the uh, Mongol army invaded Burma, the Burmese called them um, Turks basically. And uh, I forgot the Burmese name for it, but it's very similar to Turks. Mm-hmm. But except like that term has transformed over the years. Now, now that term is applied to just Han Chinese <laughs> because yeah, you know that's all crazy. Come from the North, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 so so like Hui has very diverse like origins, like a lot of. But there are some Hui's from Northwest, 
uh, like the area bordering Xinjiang, like like from Gansu, Qinghai, that area. Uh, some way you can kind of see like non-Chinese features, but I I would say vast majority of way they they don't yeah they they don't really look that different. So I'm I'm hearing and I'm I'm reading a few things that that maybe their mosques and uh, you know they are also starting to be targeted. So I guess my question is, let's say that you are a way who is an you know pork eating alcohol drinking atheist. Um, I, do you think that that person would be totally safe? Uh, they don't look any different than yeah. a Han Chinese. Okay. Well, well, well. Okay. Let, no, no. Let me let me put it this way. They would normally be be uh, safe, but if they ever get involved, like if somehow they get like got um, suspected with ties with uh, terrorism related activities, they will be scrutinized more closely. Let me give you an example, right? So one of this such a Hui person who eat pork, <laughs> like you say, non-Muslim and, and smoke or do whatever. He, um, so these are, in China, there's a, uh, there's like kind of subculture of people who follow the Syrian civil war very closely and he's one of those people and so like what they do is they will take you know these videos or, or like information piece and uh piecemeal from like say twitter um and they will like take that content uh port it over the gray firewall and put it on the chinese social media weibo right and they were actually like message boards and everything so for a while that was kind of allowed to exist but after um particularly after um 2014 Kunming's train station attacks there was a crackdown uh, on by chinese government on the internet uh on, on like they wanted to uh you know is the the crackdown is supposed to target all the radical um islamic preaching or any kind of what they perceive as radical spreading radical content on the internet but it's uh in in, in the implementation it was like very far ranging like anything because uh, think about it as chinese uh your average chinese uh, internet sensors they're, they're likely you know not that highly educated they probably don't know arabic you know they, they don't know the the difference between say uh, a, a propaganda video uh, from Islamic State versus, um, say, like a, a like a, a propaganda video from the Syrian government, right? <laughs> to them, they all looks the same. It's all in Arabic. So, so you know, everything that, to a point that um, yeah. I, I I myself was involved in posting those content, and I got I got banned on Weibo several times, and I couldn't figure out why. And and finally, I was able to talk to some of these people, and it turns out. There was a rule that anything with they can't have anything with Arabic in the videos, you know, like or or, or audio, right? Because I, I was posting even like like those female anchors from the Assad state media who are obviously unveiled, right? Like, but that yeah. those videos would be banned. I didn't understand that until I until I find out what the rule was. Oh, okay, so anything Arabic will be banned. Okay, and and but so one of my friend who was Huey. Right, even though he's non-Muslim, <laughs> and he was involved in posting these uh, Syrian war footage and content, so he 
unlike me who lived in the United States, he lived in China. So he actually got invited to tea by, by the Chinese police. So like, they're basically like, okay, why, why are you doing this? Why are you posting this content? You know, you know, these are considered uh, terrorism, right? Terrorism uh, related content, right? And, and, and he basically told me, yeah, uh, he, he probably got the extra scrutiny because his way, even though he's not Muslim, but because he's way, so he probably got the, like that, you know, that extra, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that extra post watch, yeah. Yeah, so, so I mean, that, I, I guess I guess what you're saying is, as long as like they don't perceive you to be ideological, um, the way are not. Yeah, going to have a I mean, I mean, like, so the thing with the Chinese, the, the people think of tend to think of Chinese government as this like efficient monolithic machine, right? Like, like a like a modern version of Nazi Germany or something, right? But it's not quite true because. How China works, usually some top leader like Xi Jinping, they will give a talk. They'll give like a direction, an initiative. Uh, a lot of the implementation detail is actually up to the local officials, right? And, and different local officials interpret it differently. And, and so a lot of times, so like after Cultural Revolution ended, um, well, one thing what Cultural Revolution did is it, it destroyed a lot of the Chinese tradition, including traditional Chinese Islam, <laughs> and and a lot and then both like uh, spiritually and physically because a lot of the old Chinese mosques that were done in like the traditional Chinese styles they have been physically destroyed, and when they rebuilt them in the eighties, they usually rebuild them in the so-called Middle Eastern style with, uh, you know, onion dome and everything. Because uh, one, a lot of the uh, Chinese mosques were getting funding from the Gulf countries. And, and two, like, that was seen to be uh, more modern and to be more in line with, uh, with the world, so, so, so to speak. And, and, then, and also there were, um, like, during that, that revival, there were, the, the Chinese government was pretty hands off in most cases, right? Like even there was even like Salafist school in the Hui area. There, there were people wearing like burqas like for years, right? With no interference from the Chinese government because Hui was not perceived to be a threat to the to the Chinese sovereignty. You no, know? like Hui is not asking to have their own independent homeland or whatever, right? Um, but but as a result of um, 2014, the Kunming train station attack. Now the Hui is starting to get affected. Like, like, um, so what? It turns out that the the Uyghur who carried out the Kunming attack, um, they, Kunming is the capital city of Yunnan, right? It's on the it's near near Myanmar. And when they went to Yunnan, they stay with the local Hui community because. You know they have mosques and they yeah. have halal food and and so um <laughs> so that that Hui commu Muslim community by extension they they got a lot more uh, close scrutiny afterwards. So before um, that area Sadian, which was a famous site of a Muslim rebellion during Cultural Revolution in like 1974, like pretty late in Cultural Revolution, Sadian was basically uh, leveled by artillery barrage of uh, People's Liberation Army and, and, and thousands of people died. And so 
like after Cultural Revolution, like the Chinese government apologized, you know, blamed everything on Gang of Four, and you know allowed the the Saudi and Hui Muslim community to rebuild, right? And they even built a like a like a monument to like martyrs, like <laughs> to martyrs of Saudi incident in in the town, right? And then they um they but they they are. Um, so the, the, that 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 town is like ninety percent, like like ninety nine percent Hui Muslim, right? So they they inst, uh, start banning alcohol and doing all those things, and um, which got a lot of the Han nationalists riled up on the internet because they're like, oh my god, you know, <laughs> they're implementing Shar- Sharia, Sharia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they were doing some controversial things because. Um, it's not just like alcohol ban, like say Utah, right? Because I've been to I've been to Utah, I've been to Provo, Utah, uh, where it's a dry town, right? <laughs> and also, uh, uh, pornography is banned, but they do have porn in the Marriott, so go figure. It's all and and and, uh, <laughs> and but but in 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 case of Sadian, they actually had these um. This has these teams who go inside people's home to search for alcohol, right? Um, and you know, so including like the Han migrant laborers who work in the town. So that that of course especially riled up the Han nationalists on, online. Uh, but but that was kind of allowed to go on for a long time. But until twenty fourteen, because the 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 Kunming train station attacked by by fourteen or eight Uyghurs. And and so that tongue has been so so before that tongue even like the the, the uh, and city government was done in Islamic style right with Amin Dome and 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 uh, and the minarets and everything and yeah and, and painted green and uh, so after that that was that building was uh, that government building was was have was totally remodeled right to, to remove all the Islamic element from the government building uh and and there was a crackdown kind of on the local religious school i i i i i don't think they're allowed to wear burqa anymore because one of the um the women attackers involving the Kunming uh, train station attacks they were wearing like the full black burqas um so so the, then then after that there was a burqa ban um so yeah so what what's happening with Uyghurs is now happening um also among the Hui, Hui um, communities, because mm. before they're just kind of left alone because they're not seen as threat. But they're now, not political. Yeah, they're not political. Like, like even even if they're Salafists, they're seen as the quietest Salafists, right? So, well, so I mean, not, not... Carl, what this is telling me here is um, leftists need to be really careful when they try to tear down a local culture because they don't know what's going to pop up in its place because. If they'd been just a little bit more chill with the local Chinese Islamic traditions, perhaps these Salafists wouldn't have to end up filling in the vacuum. Because it sounds like oh, they I tore mean, apart, yeah, you know. That's definitely true. I mean, it's it's such, it's very similar to what happened to in former Soviet Union, right? I mean, in places like Chechnya, where... Uh, during the Soviet time, kind of the the USSR basically neutered the local uh, Islamic cleric, right? They they made these government prove government sanctioned cleric, which nobody cared for. Um, and that that was happening in Xinjiang as well, by the way. And you know, like one of the things, because like the 
the um the clergy used to have a lot of power uh, in Xinjiang. What what happened when the um, the communists took over? One of the things is they took over the land, right? The the land was confiscated from all the mosques and and was uh, was uh, um, you know appropriated by the state. And, and so in a way the uh, the you know it's the same thing was done with the uh, uh, Tibetan um, monasteries, the Buddhist Buddhist monasteries, because the, the, the Buddhist Buddhist monastery used to be large landowner in Tibet. Uh, but one of the thing with the uh, communist land reform is they took all the land away. So now the communist uh, government say, hey, we actually support uh, Tibetan Buddhism. So you see, we're paying like subsidy to support all the monks. But the reason they're doing that is because. You know, you took took away all their land. <laughs> they're not they're not yeah. self supporting anymore. But anyway, yeah. so but but now government Chinese government is is uh, promoting that as a plus. Like no, we're actually supporting these monasteries. We're supporting these mosques. We're paying the clerics, right? And but yeah. but the, but what end up happening is with these government sanctioned clerics, whatever. Like people don't give a shit. Uh, people just like because because one of the thing is. Um, with some of these uh, uh, people coming back from Afghanistan, uh, you know, the, the one talking about the Afghanistan war against Soviet Union is that they start preaching. They start have like this underground ground uh, um, preachers who say, "Oh, those uh, those those state sanctioned mosques, they're not real uh, Islamic scholars. They're not. That's not real Islam. Like what we are bringing back is the pure." authentic Islam. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, because you know, in a way, the government, the Chinese government totally undermined the traditional, um, like, religious structure, right? So that created the vacuum, like you say, allowed the Salafists. Nature, to nature you know, I, we got a little over, I, but now after this discussion, I want to end it um, because listeners are going to want to know. I don't generally talk about Pakistan because I don't care, uh, but I know the Chinese government, the Chinese state has an alliance with Pakistan and there's some yes. geopolitical things going on here. Yeah. I mean, how, I mean, but Pakistan is like, it's America's great frenemy, you know? I mean, yes. it, Pakistan has so many crazy Muslims. Yes. I mean, you know, I mean, yes. like, what is going on? I mean, this is like- 1962, 1962. This, everything changed in 1962, the Sino-Indian War. I mean, before 1962, Pakistan was openly hostile to China. Like China was more closer to India than Pakistan before 1962. But after the war, that war changed everything. I mean, 1962 allowed Pakistan and China to come closer, closer together. Um, that's when, like, I think in 1967, China and Pakistan resolved their boundary dispute. Um, you know, in the around the Kashmir section, and uh, and after that. Uh, you know, basically China just, yeah, China and Pakistan just became an item after that because it's, it's really I mean, because of India. It, it's obviously realpolitik and there's that history. There's that history that's over 50 years old now. Yeah. I, I guess like my question is like as someone who doesn't – like I don't really keep track of it. I don't really care. I'm American, whatever. But I mean how how is this relationship – like there are structural reasons in terms of looking at the map, why this alliance should be, mm-hmm. but ideologically, what China is doing to religion and Islam in particular, I mean, 
it should really rile up a lot of Pakistanis. Like maybe the state has enough control over their media that it's not getting out. Yeah. Or they understand that the rivalry with India is so big that they'll look the other way. But like, well, how sustainable would... is this in the long term? That's a good question. Well, see, the Pakistan state has a stake in maintaining the the China-Pakistan relationship because, you know, they, they're getting a lot of money from, from China and and they're spinning, uh, they're basically taking the China stance, uh, China's line that this is uh, really about Uyghur separatism, right? It's not about religion, it's not about, about Islam. Um, sometimes they trot out the way Muslims are the model Muslims in China, right? And, uh, and, 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 and also like the, you know, of course, all these, not just Pakistan, but all the other Muslim countries, like, like in the Middle East, they also have their own, a lot of time, the only internal issues with political Islam, right? And they, they kind of, okay, understand China is just doing its own thing within its own borders. Uh, but in terms of the public, that's, yeah, that's hard to, to tell. As far as I can see, there are already a lot of uh, Pakistani diaspora who are pretty angry with China for its uh, for what it's doing uh, in Xinjiang, right? I see that all the time on Twitter. Um, but but um, well, it's, it's it's not that far away. It's like right over. Well, it's over the mountains, right? Like geographically, it, it, there has been some connection with parts of Pakistan. Yeah, and Kashgar. Well, geographically, they're closer. But I mean, really, like there's a the big big Himalayan range, right? The Pamir mountain is, is between the two. I mean, the only thing that's linking the yeah. two country is the, right now is that one road, the Karakoran highway um, that was finished in 1979. Um, and, and, and the, you know, all the trade is going through there, uh, but, but traditionally the, the, um, you know, the Pakistan occupied uh, Kashmir, the uh, basically Gilgit and Baltistan has a, has is traditional historically linked to uh to Turkestan or the what what is now Xinjiang right they they have had that close relationship but not necessarily um, like yeah. the rest of Pakistan because uh, Pakistan itself is kind of patched together countries right with different wide yeah. variations yeah. so so yeah so there's a lot of thing going on there I mean I I guess what I would say is you know if you're a an IR scholar and you want to illustrate, you know, geopolitical realism, this is probably one of the best illustrations because on paper, these two nations have nothing in common culturally in terms of ideology. Well, I'm, you know, in terms of, Oh, like, definitely. I mean, you know. give you another example is Cambodia, right? I mean, China, um, partially with also with United States supported Khmer Rouge in the eighties against uh, against the Vietnamese um, and and that you know Vietnam installed its own kind of the puppet uh, Cambodian go- uh, government you know under Hun San Hun Sen and then um, and then the Vietnamese withdrew after the collapse of Soviet Union in 1990 uh, around 1990 1992 and and then um, you know the, the Cambodia had its uh, UN monetary election you know Khmer Rouge boycotted it and you know Khmer Rouge was out after that but China very quickly uh, formed a new relationship with the uh, with the uh, Cambodian government which is basically the same Cambodian government that was propped up by Vietnam right the the same guy was in charge Hun Sen and 
and now like China and Cambodia is like best buddy buddies. One of the reason is because of Vietnam, because you know Cambodia always, you know Cambodia, <laughs> Cambodia has that very uneasy history with Vietnam. Like the, the, basically, Vietnam to Cambodia is what China is to Vietnam. So so that kind of bring China and Cambodia closer together. Even though there's no like in terms of ideology, you know, like like today today's. Chinese foreign policy is not ideological. I mean, if anything, the, the United States foreign policy is way more ideological than the, than the Chinese one. I mean, China will do business with mm -hmm. practically anyone in power. So, like another example is Sudan. You know, China used to uh, China like because the Chinese oil company has a large share of the oil field in Sudan. You know, China used to supply the Sudan government with a lot of arms. And uh, you know to fight the Southern Sudanese rebels, right? And and also the the the, the Darfur rebels. There was a huge uh, movement in U.S. to divest from PetroChina because of Darfur. Um, and and you know because I was at the Warren Buffett uh, shareholder meeting, and I remember there was even like representative from Darfur, like um, raising a raising raising a big issue there. And and then United States helps Southern Sudan broker a peace deal where Southern Sudan became independent, right? Then China very quickly established relationship with Southern Sudan because that's where oil is. And, you know, even though China has been supporting like the Sudanese government to fight these Southern Sudan rebel for decades. And, but as soon as there been, became an internationally recognized country, you know, China moved in, established relationship, you know, still pumping out oil. So, so like, you know, Chinese foreign policy today, post-cultural revolution, you know, in the then era is not ideological, is is very pro programmatic. They will do business with literally anyone as long as they're being has some kind of international recognition, like by UN or so so forth. I see. I mean basically it's what have you done for me lately? It's sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like China it's more than that. It's like if there's a if they have natural resources, if they have oil, particularly, China will work with you. <laughs> they they will work with you. Yeah, but 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 there has to be some kind of international cover. There has to be, uh, you know, they have to be internationally recognized uh, government, right? China prefer not to work with like uh, uh, like non-state actors, um, you know. But but if they got international recognition, China will be there doing business it was great uh talking to you carl and uh hopefully uh listeners uh, i will uh... tune in next week for brown <laughs>